happy 4th of July or 4th of July weekend. I'll bet you never thought you'd have one like this where rodeos and firework displays and all those things are just on hiatus. So uh, here's where I want to jump off because we're going to start this conversation around the Psalms, but this is an ironic conversation for me to start. But maybe first ask this question of what, what is that thing for you and... Uh, well, let me just finish the thought. I always do that. I start a thought and then I nuance the thought, but I haven't even finished the thought, so I don't even know what I'm talking about. What's that thing for you that you've tried really hard to like it because you know you should like it, but you can't like it? And I know in some ways we're describing all of human ill, but so let's not go too dark. But I just mean like, what's that, that thing? Uh, maybe it's a food or an activity or something like, you know you should like it. You, you live with somebody who likes it. Someone's telling you you should like it. And you just, you just don't like it. Like, uh, for me, it's tomatoes. Like, I, I like vegetables. I actually would kind of reach towards vegetables, especially if I didn't cook them and if they're not mushy and they're not a mushroom. Mushrooms would be another one, but there's nothing valuable about a mushroom, so I don't feel like the need to include a mushroom. But like tomatoes are just the most... Even if I think about the taste of a tomato, it just repulses me. What, what, what is that for you? Like that, that thing that... Okay, so for me, as it relates to the Bible, that's the book of Psalms. I mean, I suppose there's others, there's Leviticus, there's Numbers, but we kind of don't feel like we're supposed to like Leviticus and Numbers, that whatever purpose it served was in a different era. But with Psalms, part, part of what happens, and if you're not familiar with the Psalms, what we're talking about is this book that we find in the Jewish Bible, or what we call the Tanakh or the Old Testament. There's 150 of them, unless you're Eastern, Eastern Orthodox, then there's 151. I didn't take the time to learn why that's the case. But all the same, there's some part poetry, some part song, some, some part prayer, some part, as Tommy talked about, lament. There are these different things, and in, in the original language, there's rhythm and rhyme and all those different things. But, but for hundreds of years, dare we say thousands of years, they, they've been one of these go-to hymn books for the church. And what's happened to me off and on over the last 10 or so years, I don't know that I started paying attention before that, was I would hear someone for whom I have great respect you know, someone would say something like Tommy did earlier of just speaking highly of the Psalms or for me, especially like international celebrity voices, people like N.T. Wright would say something or Dallas Willard like, man, I just don't know how you live your Christian life without the Psalms. And I just, so I would try to read them. I'd buy the book and try to read it. And I just always had the same response of like, I don't get it. Like cut to the chase, get rid of all the weird language. Can we just talk directly? Like I like Paul and his epistles. Like I like the way that guy's brain works. I like Matthew and Mark. And so I've just never connected with the Psalms to that extent where you're like, I don't even know if I'm Christian, right? Because you, there, there's, in some places, they're just revered at such a high level. Well, fast forward, what happened to me this, I suppose about a year ago now is, as some of you know, I get this privilege of, as an alum of Portland Seminary, I get to continue to take classes from there, but it's like the perfect situation because because I already graduated, I get to just cherry pick the, the, the course schedule and take whatever class I want because I'm not worried about the degree at the end of the road. And so one of the things that I've really leaned towards more recently is uh, those classes because one of the things that the school will do is they'll find adjunct professors who who live in Portland, work at a coffee shop, and have like PhDs in some kind of nuanced thing from the Bible, and then they'll get them to teach a class. So it's, it's awesome. Well, I'd learned last time about a year ago that in the spring, which started in January, that there was, they were going to do a, a class just on the Psalms. That's another thing they started doing was just these book classes, and they're, they're awesome. But not only that, but the class was going to be taught by this Korean woman who got her PhD just in the Psalms from Boston College. So I was like, that's going to be a good class. So I took the class, and it was a pretty good class, though COVID kind of made the class all the more interesting. 
And there was this point towards the end of the semester, which ended early, where I, we were in a Zoom meeting, which, oh, Zoom, that's like a trigger word for me now. And uh, I remember saying, though, to the class, like, I'm, I'm so thankful that I was in this course during this season because I have a whole new appreciation for the Psalms. So here's what we're going to do. There's over about the next six weeks, and a couple of those. Next week, Hannah's going to teach. If it's the only Sunday you get to the summer, summer, get there. That'll be great. Tommy's going to teach a couple weeks after that. That'll be great. But when I'm teaching, what we're going to do is work our way through the Psalms, but not, not linearly. Uh, I'm not qualified to do this kind of comprehensive outlook or, or perspective on the Psalms, but I'm just going to kind of, almost in, I suppose, devotional style, go like, here were the three or four, I guess there's four of them things that I really, because what I like to do when I'm done with that class is just kind of step back and go, okay, what did I take from it? And there were four things that rose to the page, to the top of the page very, very quickly, and so that's what we're going to do. This morning, and I think for me this is the one that's most likely to stick the longest, especially from a non-academic standpoint, it's, 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 here's what I want to drill down on. Like, here's the one thing that I want to provoke thought around. And again, it's not important to me that we agree. If, if I can play the role of causing you to think about it, then that's a huge win for me. But what, what if the Psalms represent the degree to which God wants us to take our turn conversationally? Like, what if part of what the Psalms model for us unlike some of the other letters, what, what, if what if their first priority isn't theology per se? It's, it's definitely uh, not nuanced theology. What, what if their first priority isn't ecclesiology or church theology? What if their primary agenda, or, or dare we say one of the primary agendas, is a God who wants us, and I, this is Walt Brueggemann's phrase, a God who wants us to take our turn. A God who doesn't just want to be listened to, but wants to be spoken to. And what if speaking to God and thinking about God are actually two fundamental different things? Like, what, what if this God really, really, really wants us to speak directly to God? You know, uh, this last winter, and if you were around here, you know it, we, we went through a couple pretty massive staff transitions. We lost good people, we hired good people. And it was in that season, and, and I got her permission to share this story, it was in that season where, sometime in December, I think, and I hope this doesn't sound like I'm patting myself on the back, because it's not my intention, it was actually to pat Hannah on the back, but it was in that season where I, I had this intentional conversation with her where I, I just, I wanted her to step into some things. And that wasn't a criticism, that was an encouragement. Many of you have been around here long enough to remember we, we hired Hannah as this college grad who had great experience, and she had all these skills, and she was this great servant. And she's done a great job of leading scattering and hospitality, but you've watched her even probably from the stage just develop her voice and her worldview and her spiritual roots all the more. And so there was this conversation we had in December where I just said, Hannah, I, I so respect the way that you've gone about, the, like the way she showed up in meetings, uh, frankly, I, I really admired. She, she kind of read the room and she was slow to speak and she listened a lot. But I said, hey, we're, we're moving into the season where, where you're not, you're not just on a staff. I don't mean to undermine that. You, like, you, you carry the DNA, like you carry the vision of this place as much as anybody. And so, I just would ask you to 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 please. And again, I didn't mean it as a criticism, but to please, like, be quicker to speak in meetings. Like, we want to hear from you. Like, you, now is the time. You're senior leader in this place. And I guess I'm here to say, like, she. And I just was able to tell her that this week. She's just done a remarkable job of stepping into that. But for me, that, that illustrates what I think I see going on in the Psalms. 
is a God who's going, I want to be listened to. And listen, if you hang around this place, you know, we, we talk a lot about listening to God. I'm very grateful for Fred, who early on in my following of Jesus' actively kind of life was the one that said, Adam, if you've got 20 minutes to read the Bible, then shut up for 10 of it. And he's not even a harsh person. But his point was, we, we do too much talking when it comes to God. So I'm not trying to deviate from that listening thing, but what if the Psalms, what if they tell a story about a God who, who wants to be addressed, who wants to be spoken to, who maybe doesn't prioritize accuracy or together, like having everything put together perfectly to the same degree we do, but, but who wants to hear from us. What if that's this God? You know, listen, listen to the, the there, there's one particular psalm. We're going to look at a few of them. We're not, I think, in this series going to look at any exhaustively. There was one I wanted to, and then COVID kind of stole that message. And so, but listen to Psalm 69. This is the save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in deep mire where there is no foothold. I have come into deep waters and the flood sweeps over me. I'm weary with my crying. My throat is parched. My eyes grow dim with waiting for my God. Now, if you have any familiarity with the Psalms, it's, odds are high that you do with this one. This is one of the classic Psalms, especially of lament. But here's my question. To what degree... Did the person who first wrote it, because before, you know, before things are etched in walls and memorialized forever, they, they, they happen to a real person living a real set of circumstances. To what degree did the person who wrote this, she or he or whoever it was, to what degree did they actually know what they were thinking and feeling before they sat down and started writing? Like, Maybe I'm projecting, invariably I am, because I'm, I'm a verbal processor. Like, I'm one of those people who, like, I don't even know what I think till I start talking, then I kind of have to stand back from it and go, like, how do I feel about that? And it can get me in some trouble. And, and I often say things that I later regret, but I'm like, well, I was just thinking. So maybe I'm projecting that. But even those of you who, uh, my wife is one of these who just, like, forms every thought in her head before she says anything. It's kind of the same process, isn't it? Like, what if the Psalms represent a God who's, who's okay with just being spoken to? And what if part of what, we, and I guess what I'm trying to say is what if this psalmist didn't set out to write this great piece of historic literature? Like what if, what if they just sat down and they started writing and suddenly they're like, oh, I didn't even know that was in there. You know, this last weekend, uh, it's that season where I bore you with lots of baseball stories. Sorry for the self-absorption, but last weekend, there's a purpose to this one. So last weekend, my youngest was in a tournament in Billings. Uh, my middle was in a tournament in Three Forks. My oldest, the poor guy, he just gets drug around to where everybody else is at. And so on Friday morning, Teresa and I drove two cars to Three Forks and watched the 9 a.m. game of Chase, and then I drove to Billings and helped coach a 2 o'clock game for JR in Billings. And then on Saturday... Chase played a doubleheader that day in three forks, and then on Saturday, Jared played a 12.30 game, and Jared played another doubleheader in three forks, and when Jared's game was over, I got in the car and drove back to Billings, and uh, Teresa got in the car after three forks and drove to Billings because I needed to be here on Sunday. I wanted to be here on Sunday, and so we kind of passed on the interstate, and then on Sunday, the plan was Teresa was going to go to the, the bracket play for Jared's games, and then I was, after church, going to drive to three forks and go to Chase's games. Well, the reason all that has some relevance was of course, it poured here, and so Chase's game in three forks got rained out, and so he went to batting practice all the same, and I had Yachty, who hadn't been exercised in eons, and so I was going to take Yachty to Legrand because I knew that JR was playing in a game, and in the world that we live in, there's an app called Game Changer. It's for helicopter sports parents, 
Because what it allows me to do, as coaches, we use it to kind of track stats and stuff, but as a parent, you can spend like nine bucks a month and you can actually get a, a computerized voice giving you the play-by-play -play of the game. Uh, I mostly hate it. I find it, it's, it, like it's, it gives me far more anxiety to listen to Jer up to bat than it does to even watch him live. So I had it not in the audio version, but just the like ESPN version, you know, where you're like, how can you watch the football move down the screen and find that entertaining? It's similar, but it's baseball. So I was driving up to Legrand, and JR came up to bat. It was the third or fourth inning. It was a tie game. Bases were loaded, no outs. And Saturday, it was one of those weird things. Saturday when I left was kind of heart-wrenching for me. Jared had a couple, frankly, pretty bad days at the plate. Timing was all off. And he's a pretty composed kid, but I could just see in his eyes when I was getting in the car and leaving him with his grandpa and grandma for a few hours before Therese would be there that he was just, he was kind of heartbroken about just the day that he had had. And so he came up to the plate in this quarterfinal game that they actually did go on to win. Bases loaded, no outs. And I just, I just started praying. Like, not out loud, but I'm driving in Teresa's car. I think I was going to Legrand at the time. And I just, and it was the type of prayer that a few years ago I wouldn't have prayed. Because it was like, well, God doesn't care who wins 13-year-old baseball games. And besides that, the pitcher's mom's probably also praying. And so how does all this fit together? I, I don't know. But I think I stopped short of bargaining. Well, I did bargain one thing with God. I was like, he's pitching. I don't care if they score 20 runs on him this game and they lose. Just please, the poor guy could use some success. Please, please, please. And he actually he hit a line drive over the shortstop's head and got a single. And that was super exciting. Here's my point, though, in all of that is I... I you know, there was a season where I wouldn't have prayed that prayer. There's a season where I would have prayed it and thought that God actually, like, I would have missed the, the fact that other people were praying for the other side. If you were to ask me today, did God contribute to JR's getting a hit? I'd go, I don't know. In fact, here, here's what I'm taking from all that. And here's, I think, what the Psalms, I think it's the story the Psalms are telling, but you'll have to figure, decide for yourself. I, I think all of those questions kind of miss the point. Because what stands out to me is more than anything else, like God and I shared that experience. Not because I was thinking about God while listening, not, not because I believed in God while I was listening, but like I was actually talking to God about the experience. And I actually think Psalms, the Psalms say that, that may be the win. That so oftentimes we, we have this posture that says, if I knew what to pray, I would pray. And I, I wonder if that misses the point more often than not. That we don't pray because we know what to say. We pray because we, 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 we value sharing experiences with God. You see this play itself out with you and your kids. You see it play itself out with you and your spouse. Like there, there's, a, there's a sharing that's actually the win. And to whatever degree that's true, it strikes me that I, I think Jesus, I think he comes at it from a real similar angle. This is maybe a little bit of, it, it takes me a little long while to develop this, but hang with me for just a second because I think this is worthwhile. And I say that because this is one of the main things I've learned from Dallas Willard. But in Matthew 6, we're, we're kind of mid-Sermon on the Mount, which is not yet, Jack, let's just I'll pull that down just for a second. But in Matthew 6, we're midpoint in the Sermon on the Mount. And what's going on in the Sermon on the Mount, we did this series last month where we explored that eternity is now, that the invitation isn't later, it's, it's now and later, so to speak. What Jesus is doing in Matthew 6 is starting to unpack, this is the stuff that will destroy your experience of God in this present moment. 
And in Matthew 6, the first thing he says, if this is an accurate interpretation, is what will destroy your experience is that you do spiritual things, not because you're trying to connect with God, but because you want to be seen by others as spiritual. So the same, same things that affect us in high school affect us in church because we start thinking more about the way things are perceived than the actual reality. And Jesus says this, And whenever you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners so that they may be seen by others. Truly I tell you, they've received their reward. So obviously what, what he's saying is obvious. Like Prayer isn't about that. And then he says in verse, verse 7, When you're praying, do not heap up empty praises as the Gentiles do, for they think they'll be heard because of their many words. Now, this one's foreign to us, but as best I can tell, in our world, we think of prayer as something religious people do. In Jesus' world, prayer is something everybody did because everybody was religious. So he's critiquing an approach that was kind of Gargamel, Smurfs, or Harry Potter-ish, where the belief was that if you just put together the right combination of words and wave the wand, then boom, you get the result you're after. And Jesus is criticizing that. Then in chapter 7, he gets into the next thing that will destroy your kingdom life. And I know this is this kind of long intellectual thing, but see if you can follow me here. He says this, Do not judge so that you may be not be judged. My opinion is that what he's getting after now is the next thing that will destroy your kingdom life, is being preoccupied by controlling others. And so he's saying, don't do that via condemnation. We're going to talk about this in October when we talk about politics. Verse 6, do not give what is holy to dogs and do not throw your pearls before swine or they will trample them underfoot and turn and maul you. Now he's saying, don't control people through your unwanted advice. Here's what I'm trying to get to. Verse 7, ask and it'll be given to you. Search and you'll find Knock and the door will be opened for you. To which we go, wait a minute, that's about prayer. Well, not, not in Matthew's context. And Matthew, ask, seek, knock is about what? It's about interpersonal relationship. That he's setting out an ethic that is this, as far as I can tell. Have the types of relationships where you don't control via condemnation. You don't control via shame. You don't control via unsolicited, unwanted advice. You just tell people what you need and what you want. You, you, you do everything you can to root out passive-aggressive behavior and all those other bad habits, and you just shoot straight with people. And to whatever degree that's true, it, it therefore is a continuation of what Jesus is talking about in his relationship that he wants to share with people. In other words, what if the Psalms model for us that this God, he, he just wants to be spoken to. He, 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 just, he, he doesn't need you to put flowers around it. Listen to another one. This one is Psalm 139, and this would be at the top of the list of every time I started reading the Psalms, why I quit. We're actually going to give a whole week to it because I, it was one of the more helpful things I learned in that whole class. But here we go, verse 21 of Psalm 139. Do I, do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? Do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with perfect hatred. It's hard to find a more oxymoronic phrase than that. More perfect hatred. I count them my enemies. Now, we're going to deal with that in a, in, in, later in the series. But here, here's, here's the question that occurs to me in first glance. Is, okay, what do we learn from this statement? And, 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 and if... if if we can agree, and we don't have to agree, but if we can agree that these aren't theologically accurate statements, uh, that, that this does not represent the heart of Christ as we see the heart of God in Christ, 
then what can we take from this statement? Well, see, to me, what that brings to the surface is, to what degree, then, does God need us to sanitize what we say? To what degree does God need what we say to be accurate? Maybe this is a a, a verbal processor arguing for my own bias. You you can decide. But to what degree does, does, does God value just saying, just working out? Here's where I've caught myself, and I think this is one of the more practical things for me from this whole series, is I... I mean, listen, I, I talk about God professionally. And, and what the Psalms have brought to the surface for me is perhaps the grief I cause God in the number of instances in my life where I say things that are about God that I've never said to God. Where I'm talking about life and God, but I've ever, actually never talked to God about my life. I think this might have some relevance in the way that we think about social media. Maybe I'm just picking on you because I'm kind of a social media critic, but I wonder if we would do well to think think more in terms of what I'm broadcasting out via this social media channel. Is it something I've actually said to God? Not, not for the reason of accountability, but because you, in many cases, don't share relationship with the person at the other end of that statement, and God stands by yearning for a relationship with you. What, what, if, what if there's a fundamental difference between talking about God, which at times we have to do, and talking to God? I, one of my working illustrations of this in my head is uh, like Google. I mean, right, we, we all know that Google's monitoring everything we say and do. Maybe that's conspiracy theory-ish, but I, I operate on the premise that everything that I say and do is heard, which therefore means that I don't necessarily have to address Google. I wonder if we treat God in a, in a parallel way. Because he's all-knowing, because God is all-powerful, because he already knows, we don't take the time to say to, but is there a difference in any relationship between hearing about and having said to you? What if the Psalms represent a God who wants to be spoken to? Psalm 145 is another one of those places that I think illustrates some of this. I will extol you, my God and King, and bless your name forever and ever. Every day I bless you and praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. His greatness is unsearchable. Again, did the person who wrote this set out to write this great psalm of gratitude, or did this person who wrote this having practiced gratitude in their life prior to this, sit down and start writing or singing or composing something and suddenly they just had created an outlet for the gratitude that they didn't even know was there and would have gone unexpressed to God had they not done this. See, one of the more helpful parts of this series for me, I feel like I've said that a few times now, was this assignment at the first of the semester. uh, our, Our professor, you know, she gave us a syllabus and all these different things and one of the assignments was, it was just titled Psalm 151. Which again, if, if, unless you're Eastern Orthodox, there's only 150. And the assignment was that sometime before the semester was over, everybody had to write a psalm and then actually read it to the class, whether it was when we were there face-to-face or on Zoom later in the semester. So I'm that guy who immediately goes to the sign-up sheet because I want like the last, not the last day, but the second to last day because I want to see what everybody else does before I vulnerably stick myself out there. But I also knew that I, I, I don't, I don't, the other thing she did is she rescued us from all kinds of English structure. You don't, you don't have to rhyme it. You don't have to follow any kind of poetic structure. She kind of rescued us from all that. She gave us a word limit. And really, it was one of those assignments, either you do it or you don't. That's all that it takes. Well, what I did, because I, 
for whatever reason, I didn't want to compose something. I, I just I just started creating these entries in Evernote, which is where I when I write and think at the same time, it's where I do that. And I just titled them Psalm 151, and I would just start typing. And again, most of the time, I had no idea what I was what I was needing to say to God. But just that process, sometimes it was gratitude, sometimes it was frustration, sometimes it was fear. And I guess my question is, what if part of the historic value of the Psalms is, is that? That it models for us and induces in us this permission to just speak to God without actually even knowing what agenda we're bringing to that occasion. And what if reading the Psalms has this way of of doing something similar. I I just, this morning, so now I'm not reading Psalms every day, but once a week I try to get to one of them, and this morning I realized like, oh man, I'm going to teach on them this afternoon, I haven't read one all week, and so I opened up to the last one that I read, and I think think it was Psalm 103, and the first verse was about, bless you, O God, and that was all I needed, and it was just like, oh yeah, I need to spend a few minutes, just, I I haven't done the gratitude practice in a while. Listen, you, you may identify with the artistic, poetic side of it, you may not, But what if what the Psalms remind us is that we are creatures of struggle? That this life of faith, and sometimes there's this tension between, I thought Jesus said if we we believe, then life works. But what if the Psalms remind us that that people set out with really good intentions and sometimes their life's not working, but that's not indicative of the fact that they don't believe? And what if they, they model for us is the permission to be real, not because what we believe in the end isn't important, but because God knows that he wants to form us via relationship, and that relationship re- requires that conversation. So listen, I don't know where you're at in your spiritual journey, whether the Psalms are something that is it's timely for you or not. But what if? What if they tell us a story of a God who wants us to take our turn in the conversation? I'd like to pray for you, and you can use a song to do that right now. God, thanks for... Thanks for these people who have composed these songs and I at times wish I better understood the context to what degree they were contrived and written for some kind of a formal service and to what degree they were just timeless because some, some person struggling somewhere scribbled something on a napkin and that proved useful person after person, gener- after, generation after generation and here we have it. But God, we, we do appreciate the fact that, that your story it reflects that we are invariably creatures of struggle and that we can live in gratitude and struggle at the same time, that we can believe in you and be confused by you at the same time, that we can trust you and be mad at you at the same time. So I pray, Lord, that to whatever degree it's the right time in each of our individual journeys with you, that this would, this would spark a conversation about the difference between believing in you and actually having personal interaction with you. Not, not to a shaming degree, but to an invitational next step of relationship degree. Amen. If you would like to learn more about Narrate Church, find us at narratechurch.org or look us up on Facebook and Instagram.